God's word in Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 1, says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, from the moment we, burnt, we are born, we're always learning. The infant rapidly perceives that their cry brings embracing, feeding, attention, and love. That's why, tragically, you can go in some orphanages and eerily not hear a single baby cry. They learn their screams brought no attention, and so they now all lie in silence. The learning of what a baby's cries elicit then moves to bending fingers, learning how to grasp, cling, maneuver those fingers around. They then try out their legs, pulling themselves up on furniture, bouncing up and down, building those muscles until they're inch away from the furniture out in the great unknown. And this process of taking in information, reflecting on it, and acting on it doesn't end until we die. Whether we enter a classroom or not, we are always learning. Some learning comes from the school of hard knocks, and others come in the halls of academia. But no matter where we are, we learn. Take something as simple as, when do we stand and when do we sit in our worship service? We have at times said you may all rise or you may all sit, but you show up for the first time and you go, they all stood. And you stand up. And then you're standing and they sit down. You go, oh, I should have sat down right there. We're always learning. And the challenge is that sometimes we gather the information, but we process it incorrectly. Our parents drill into us, tell the truth, and then we wonder why they're glaring at us when we told Granny her food tasted horrible. We told the truth. We see someone sick or suffering in poverty, and we go, well, I know that sin brings harm, so those people must have sinned, though that's not always true. And there are other things to learn that you can't tell without being told. Electrical outlets, stoves, irons, they just look like other objects, but they can be very dangerous. Some containers in the house have drinks that taste great. Other containers have poisons that could kill you. So thankfully, God has not left us alone to figure out this world, but rather he's given us his word and he's given us parents to guide and instruct us into what is good and true and beautiful. We've been studying Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, and in prior weeks we discussed God's calling to children. Then we looked at 10 ways parents can wrongly provoke their children to anger, and last week we talked about how to discipline our children. Today, We turn to the last part of this passage in which God commands, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God gave parents many important responsibilities, and one main one is instructing our children. To expound on Paul's words here, we're going to consider five aspects as the parent as teacher. First, the parent's source of teaching. Second, the parent's target of teaching. Third, the parent's role of teaching. Fourth, the parent's time of teaching. And fifth and lastly, the parent's model of teaching. Keith read for us earlier 2 Timothy 3, which we'll mention later. But we're going to spend a lot of our time examining Deuteronomy 6. So I mentioned that. Go ahead and flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
Deuteronomy 6, I'll read verses 1 through 9. God's word says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So the first thing we see from these verses is the parent's source of teaching, verses 1 through 4. And we see that God clearly communicated in his word what he wants his people to do. You know, we don't have to guess. We don't have to look within and say, well, this is what I think God wants us to do. No, we're told we honor God by keeping all his statutes and commandments. Not only does he tell us what he wants to do, but in verse 3 he says we'll be blessed if we carefully do them. Now Keith read 2 Timothy 3 earlier. Let me read again verses 14 through 17. It says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned. Timothy was taught God's word. And it continues, and have firmly believed, knowing from what you've learned it, from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. So that's how Timothy learned God's desire for his life. And it continues, these sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now thus the source of a parent's teaching is all scripture. Because Paul then continues, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know, the amazing thing is when Paul wrote that, the New Testament canon hadn't been formed. Just from the Old Testament, he was able to be taught how he could have salvation in Christ Jesus. And so, to make a whole Christian, you need the whole Bible. We don't just need to teach our children John 3.16 or verses on Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection, though we should learn those as well. We need all of God's Word. So the source of our teaching is God's Word. Yet along with God's Word, He's also given us His world. You remember Jesus' sermon where He's talking to them about anxiety and He says, Consider the lilies of the field. Or consider the ravens. The world was a teaching arena for Jesus. Or the beginning of the service, I read Psalm 8, which rejoices in all that when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. The psalmist could look at creation and go, this is teaching me about God. Well, we were in San Antonio the first Sunday of the year and Keith preached and I didn't, I mean I knew what he preached on, I listened to the sermon, but I didn't listen to the whole service. So last week I started the service by reading Psalm 19 and some of you may have thought didn't we read this last week? 
Well, yes, you did. And Keith told me that later. That's funny. We read the same psalm the first week of the year, and then unbeknownst to me, since I didn't know you read it, I read it the second week of the year. But it's a wonderful psalm, and it begins with this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, God's source of learning about him is from the world. Creation, the heavens, all these things. And then it goes on in verses 7 through 8, and it talks about God's word. For it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And so Psalm 19 is a beautiful psalm depicting both. That God instructs us in his world, and God instructs us in his word. And thus, we should use both God's word and God's world to teach our children. Relatedly, we can even use people in this world who reflect on both of those. There are great Christian authors who we sometimes read with the women, or read with the men, or read as we meet up individually, who've helped us. As well, the Apostle Paul, in his New Testament writings, he quotes a non-Christian poet, he quotes a non-Christian prophet, and he even quotes a non-Christian play. In other words, the things in this world don't need to have like a cross on them or talk about Jesus for you to enjoy them or find them helpful or in a way to communicate. You know, thus, whether you're watching a movie, going for a hike, reading a book, camping, engaging in art, playing sports or board game, anywhere you are, you can engage and teach your children. So we have to ask, are we as parents, as adults, are we students of God's world and word? Do we delight in God as the creator and savior and convey that love to our children? Have we realized, as Jesus said when he was tempted by the devil, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know, parents, we haven't done enough if at the end of the day our children are merely fed, clothed, and sheltered. That's a good day for some of us. But an even better day is also they've been fed the word of God, that they've been shown a love for God, which leads us to the next thing in Deuteronomy 6. For our teaching is not aimed randomly, but Deuteronomy gives a clear target. The second point, the parent's target of teaching. Look again at verses 5 and 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. All these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So the target for parents is that their children would love God and do so with their whole being. Our deeds, emotions, thoughts, desires, our whole soul should find its joy and satisfaction in devotion to God. This is quite different than the religion of the Pharisees that Jesus so often rebuked. You know, they were fastidious in knowing God's words. God's word. They were devoted to doing what it said, and yet Jesus condemned them. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You can come to church every Sunday. You can know all the right theology. You can know every chapter and verse and what it says. You can be regular in giving to the church and the poor and not have a heart for God. The goal is not merely to have children who can say the right Christian answers. You know, Jesus condemned the Pharisees for that. Our goal is for children that love God with their whole 
being. And the pathway to the heart is through the mind. We quote it often, but it's a very important verse. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I don't know how often you like to watch people who do trick shots, but imagine someone with a bow and arrow, they're going to shoot a bullseye. Now, for people who are really good, that's no problem. So then they start rings swinging back and forth, and of course they'd probably light them on fire because everything's harder if it's on fire. And they're swinging back and forth, and they're going to say, I'm going to hit that bullseye, but I'm also going to hit it while every ring goes through and hit the target. Well, it's not a trick shot, but the Christian's target is a child's heart, and it's going to path through, have a pathway through the rings. You know, we can't bypass the mind. We can't just hope that our children one day have this love for God. It occurs through teaching their minds. And when they fall short, as we do too, we help them see and understand how their heart led to their actions. We have to get to their heart, but we do so through their mind. And so that means we have to be not content just that they did what we said and they conform, but we pray and strive that they would want to obey from the heart. Thus, the goal of instructing our children is not primarily their academic or athletic or artistic success. You know, it's a great joy if you have a children, a child who does well in one of those areas. But if they become the world's very best at anything and they don't have a love for God, God will say their life was a failure. As 1 Timothy 4, 8 says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, please don't miss here. I know that none of us can make our children love God. We can teach them all the right things. We can have a heart for them. But they have to choose to follow Christ themselves. Yet there's a world of difference between pouring all your energy and time into them being so successful in something in this world only, and then you letting them enjoy those things, but really helping them to see, helping them to see that what really matters is God in eternity. You know, we want our children to see, yes, these things are great, but they are momentary, but we will live eternally. So we need to avoid the lie that an education is merely to get a good job, and we want them to see how an education is to enjoy and know God's world and what he's made. So we should take them to zoos or Grand Canyons and other incredible places, not so we can have our bucket list checked, but rather so they can rejoice in their creator. Now I know a common critique of what I'm saying this morning is, but shouldn't we let our children come to their own conclusions? Isn't it dogmatic, narrow-minded, wrong to force your children to believe what you believe? Yet, I think we need to ask back, does anyone really think that? I mean, is there anyone who says, I'll wait till they're 18 and let them decide if they should play by the fire? You know, they don't want to go to school. All right, who am I to force that education is a valuable thing in life? You know, does that poison really kill? Some people's adults like to drink it. Why should I force my values on them and not let them drink poison? 
Well, of course, all of those, we say, no, we tell our children, you're not going to play by fire, you are going to go to school, and you can't drink that. Because we are all conveying our thoughts. Everyone is doing that. As well, I do think the Christian faith helps us to do this in a more honoring way to children. And that is, as Christian parents, we realize we can't and we shouldn't force our children to believe. As I just said, God's desire is their internal love and not just external conformity. Thus, we do teach our children the truths of Christ and we urge them to believe, but we should also give them room to wrestle, think, and consider. They must, I believe, come to church with us while they're in our homes, but whether they choose to follow Christ is ultimately up to them. Thus, while we grieve when our children, whether in the home or out, have never joined the faith or left it, we don't threaten our love or that we'll abandon them if they don't follow what we know to be true. And this really transitions to the role as of parent as teacher in verse 7. So the third point, the parent's role as teacher. We see this clearly, that parents are the primary teachers by Deuteronomy 6 verse 7, where it says, You shall teach them diligently to your children. Or Psalm 78.5 says, God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. You know, it wasn't the primary responsibility of the priest or the prophet or the king or the youth pastor or the pastor or whoever it might be to teach the children. Rather, God ordained that the normal means of instruction would be through parents. Thus, parents, you are primarily responsible for the instruction and teaching of your children so that they know how to love God and love others. It's not the school district's role or the Sunday school teacher's role to teach your children. The primary role of teacher is you. Now, I've used the word primary or ultimate on purpose because... While the Bible commands parents to be the primary teacher, that doesn't mean we can't supplement. Samuel was given to Eli to be taught how to be a priest for the Lord. Paul, though we're not told what age, but normally fairly young, was a student of Gamaliel. Jesus, at age 12, was, what does it say? Luke 12, 42, 46, Jesus was sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Jesus was 12 years old. He was not yet an adult, and there was nothing wrong with him going to others and learning from them. Thus, Christian parents can choose to send their children to Sunday school, youth group, get tutors, go to private school, go to public school. No matter what a parent chooses in those options, though, they need to realize that they are still primarily responsible. God's not going to say, well, did you make sure you had them in a good school, but what did you do? Yes, you can supplement, you can have others help, but you are still primarily responsible for their education. But you might be thinking, but, but I don't really want to teach. I don't want to, I'm terrified of teaching. Well, let me change the scenario and say, well, what would you say to a parent who said, I don't want to have to cook meals, I'm a horrible cook. Well, I think we'd say, well, sorry, you don't want to, but you had the child, and that's now your responsibility, whether you want it or not. 
And just as God expects you to care for your children physically, He expects you to care for them spiritually. More than that, whether you attempt to instruct your children or not, they're always learning from you. It's impossible to be someone's parent and not teach them. You're doing nothing might teach them that life should only be fun and that education doesn't matter. Your lack of instructing them in God's word will convey that God's word just really isn't that important to life. You know, I read of a woman who was raised in a Christian home, but abandoned that in her adulthood. And she was raising her own children without any kind of Christian convictions. And one day, her children said to her, Mom, what is this word sin? And she realized, I've never taught my children about sin. And writing about it, she says, I am raising my two daughters according to my moral code. To me, the greatest sin, though of course she doesn't use that word with her kids, of all, is failing to be an engaged citizen of the world. So the lessons are about being open to others rather than closed off. We've marched for racial justice and for women's rights. Our church is the street, our congregation, our fellow crusaders. We teach our children to respect the earth by reducing, reusing, and recycling. And so she was realizing, well, I'm not teaching Christian convictions, but I am teaching values to my children. And every parent is, whether they attempt to or not. The question is not, are you teaching? The question is, what are you teaching? Thus, God calls you to be the teacher, and we're doing so whether intentionally or unintentionally. And again, we're always being taught. I mean, let's just consider a couple of things. Consider fashion. Which teen girls had a lesson on the fact that jeans now should be high-waisted and have rips in them? Which boys were told that shorts originally should go up to your thighs, and then over time they should go below their knees, and now they're rising up again? Were people taken to a class and instructed, this is how you should wear your shorts? Well, no, it's just culture. It's songs, music, billboards, movies, TikToks, all these things... They're teaching us. Now, many parts of a culture are all moral. It's not immoral or amoral for girls to have rips in their jeans or have higher waist. Yet we have to be cautious because our t- culture does teach morals, values, the meaning of life. Again, though, not normally through a direct, all right, we're going to stop this movie and have a teaching lesson on what the meaning of life is. Rather, it's conveyed subtly in what they encourage you to laugh at, what they encourage you to cry at, what they show through the color, the scenes, by everything, what's good and bad. And so, parents, you should be very cautious of allowing your children to have access to unfiltered culture. You should know and set limits on who they're friends with, what they watch, what they read, what they listen to. Of course, you can't and shouldn't avoid the world, but neither do we give them free range to access it without your guiding and directing them. And you'll hear, but everyone else's parents lets them listen to this, lets them have a phone, lets them have a computer or TV in their room, to which the reply is, well, I don't have to give an account to God for every other child, but I do have to give an account to God for you. And there's much wisdom needed, because as I already said, Paul quoted non-Christian poets, poems, plays, prophecies, and it might be a good exercise to watch or listen to some non-Christian things. I've never done this before, but I was listening 
to a podcast this week, and one of the men speaking was saying that he has a game with his children, and every time they spot a lie in a movie, he gives them a dollar. And if they spot a really big lie, he'll give them five bucks. No, I'm not saying you should do that. But his goal is to teach them to engage and go, I'm not just going to watch this movie. I'm going to listen. Oh, they just told me to follow my heart. Ding, ding, ding. And they get a dollar because that's a horrible idea to believe that our culture is constantly teaching us. But the point is, you have to not let your children just be swept along with culture, but to help them not be taken captive, but be captivated by the word of God. And this leads really to the next thing, the fourth point, the parents' time of teaching. Again, Deuteronomy 6-7, it says, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. In other words, we should take every opportunity that presents itself to teach our children. You know, God should influence not just what we say here on Sunday morning, but God should influence everything. Now, it's rather ironic. We live in a time in which we have the most engaged parents and also the least engaged parents at the same time. We're helicopter parents, always hovering around, making sure everything's all right, while at the same time completely distracted by our phones while we are there. So we have to realize that God wants us not to be prison guards, merely making sure everyone stays safe and doesn't escape and no one's fighting. We're to engage our children and enter into life with them. And while it may be good, and it is good, to set aside specific times, maybe to read the Bible or read a good book together or sing or pray, we often don't need more time. We need to take advantage of the time that already exists. You know, most of us have baked into our schedule Two times a day that we're all together. Breakfast and dinner. Maybe some of you lunch. We'll use that time to talk. It doesn't always have to be about some clearly Christian thing, but you could use one of those to read a devotional or a passage of scripture. You can use that time to talk about the sermon or what you learn in Sunday school. You know, don't just make food and say, well, y'all can come get it whenever you want. Go eat wherever you want. Redeem the mealtime for the instructing and nurturing of children. You know, put the phones on silent, turn the TV off, ask open-ended questions and see what's going on in their life. And we could discuss many different areas of life to instruct our children on, but let me just talk about one, and that is suffering. Now, of course, we need to do our best to keep them out of harm's way, the helicopter parent of today tries to make sure that no suffering happens. And yet you actually hurt your children. You're not helping them. If you immediately jump in to take any possibility of them being awkward, uncomfortable, or suffering from them. Of course, we don't want them to strike out and then have to walk back to the dugout with everyone going, well, why'd you do that? I mean, that's unenjoyable. We want them to always have good relationships, but sometimes you need to show them how to restore a relationship rather than jumping in and fixing it. I've shared before of the experiment in the 1980s, the biodome experiment, huge glass dome in which they created this perfect environment where there's purified air, water, filtered light, everything else. It was the perfect growing conditions for plants, 
animals, and humans. And yet there is one thing that continued to baffle the scientists. The trees would grow great until about this certain height they would always just split in two. And then they finally realized what happened. They'd forgotten to put wind in the biodome. Trees need wind to blow against them, which causes them to harden their exterior, causes them to sink roots into the soil, causes them to gather strength. Without wind, trees fall over. And the winds of life are good for our children. And to always remove them is to cause them to topple. Now, of course, I'm not saying pursue suffering for your children, yet it is okay for them to be uncomfortable. It's okay for them to be bored in a car. You don't have to give them an electronic or at a restaurant as you wait. It's good for them to have to speak to the waitress and tell them what they want. It's good for them to have a teacher who's not perfect. Of course, I'm not talking about an abusive teacher, but a teacher who, you know, they're just not great, but they're not bad. Well, you don't need to go rush in and get a new teacher. Sometimes you have to learn how to deal with someone who's just, yeah. Of course, we don't want them to have any of those things, but that's normal aspects of life in a fallen world. Our goal is not to remove suffering, but to come alongside them and show them God's purposes and God's love, even in the midst of suffering. So, we need to be careful that we don't confuse the call to instruct our children to mean, well, I need to go home and set up a little classroom where I can instruct them. Well, all of life is the classroom, and we're always able to teach. The question is, are we there alongside and engaged to instruct and teach? And the last thing we need to consider is the parents' model of teaching. Verses 8 and 9, the parents' model of teaching. It says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlet before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, I don't think this is literally saying you have to have Bible verses posted on your hands and before your eyes and over the doorpost of your house. Though an appropriately placed verse can always be a great reminder. The point is that we need our lives saturated with Scripture. The influence of Scripture in our life should be like a tea bag. You can have that hot steaming water and drop a tea bag in and out. And the water is then tinged with tea. But to fully enjoy the tea bag, you have to let it sit in the water and seep. And the tea is such a part of the water that when you pull the bag out, you no longer say, well, that's water with a hint of tea. You say, that's tea. It's been changed by its being saturated with the tea. You may have heard of John Bunyan, the famous author of Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most influential Christians in the English-speaking world. And I think his influence stems from the fact that, as one man said, Prick Bunyan anywhere, and you will find that his blood is Bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his soul is full of the word of God. And one of the best ways to be saturated with scripture is memorization. Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart 
that I might not sin against you. You know, I've known many people say, well, Scripture memory is so hard, I can't do it. And yet we're memorizing things all the time without knowing it. Now, I don't often have verbal feedback during the sermon, but I want you to give feedback now. So I'm going to say something, and I want you to finish it. Here we go. Nationwide is? There you go. Like a good neighbor? Every kiss begins with? The best part of waking up? Now, which of you had a 3 by 5 card and every day said, all right, got to memorize this. The best part of waking up, oh, I can't remember. Flip, oh, it's Folgers in your cup. Which one of us had to go and replay over and over, every kiss begins with K? Well, if we all, like a whole room, none of us, none of you knew you had this quiz this morning, you could all just say this, then why do they keep making commercials? I mean, we know it. So why do they keep showing us the same thing over and over? Well, because they want you saturated with their commercial. Because they want you when you go, oh, this insurance company stinks. Well, like a good neighbor, State Farm's that. I'm going to call State Farm. Or they want you to think, oh, this morning's miserable. I know if I'd had Folgers in my cup, that would have been the best part of waking up. Which I often think if that's the best part of waking up, you might need to talk to me or a counselor. But nonetheless, um, the point is, they spend millions of dollars because they want your mind saturated with something you've heard before. How much more do we need our minds saturated with scripture that you can repeat it like a good neighbor and you can all say State Farm is there because it's in your life over and over so that when we find the lure of sin, we think of Hebrews eleven twenty five that like Moses, I'm going to choose godliness rather than, than the fleeting pleasures of sin. When we're tempted to despair over the fact that our bodies are falling apart, we remember 2 Corinthians 4.16, that though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. When we feel like, why am I still doing this? Why am I serving and doing all these things? No one ever notices that you drink in Jesus' words of Mark 9.41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. That scripture is there on your tongue and in your mind because in life we need it. So scripture memory is one way to regularly put God's word in our children's life. And yet there are many others. You can read the Bible together. You can listen to songs that have scripture set to memory. Watch and read good books about missionaries. Christians who've encouraged others and other good Christian books. You know, there's many resources out there. There's so many good ones. And as a church, we try and come alongside parents by having Sunday school or scripture memory program on Wednesday night. Now, those aren't flashy. They're not dramatic. But neither are most of the important things in life. And in our teaching, we have to consider what is age-appropriate and what they might misunderstand. I knew a girl who thought the hymn, Lead On, O Kingy Turtle, was Lead On, O Kinky Turtle. Ted Tripp tells of a little girl who knew her mom was deathly ill, and so she drew a picture of Jesus striped like a, like a zebra, because she knew, by his stripes, we are healed. 
And so we have to consider our children in their age and go, are they understanding what I'm saying? You know, we need to ask questions so we elicit from them what we're teaching and if they're really grasping. So when I'm talking about teaching your children, I'm not talking about you lecturing them for 30 minutes or five minutes or whatever the case may be. I'm not talking about you just dumping information on them. It's engaging their life. And if you read something, let's say the Bible, and you finish and they go, well, that's not right. You don't come down like Moses from Sinai saying, I will condemn you for critiquing God's word. You say, well, why do you say that's not right? You know, your children will quickly learn whether they can voice their questions to you. And if any question is met with your anger, then they're not going to stop having questions. They're just going to stop telling you. And then they'll have those questions and they'll come to conclude, you know, the Bible's really contradictory and it really doesn't have the answers because all my parents do is get angry when I point this stuff out. But you might think, but they're going to ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. Well, then you'll know what it's like being a pastor. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of questions we don't have the answer to. And so sometimes we have to say, I don't know, but I'll go look. And then sometimes we have to come back and say, you know, I don't really have a great answer for that. I know it's not this, and this is why, and I know it's not this, and I, this. But, you know, there's lots of things in life where I trust God because he's proven himself faithful in so many other areas, so I'm going to trust him here. And so, as parents, we're not, I'm not talking about you just becoming a lecturer, but engage your children. Draw out from them, elicit what is going on in their life and showing them how God and his word relates and then along with teaching and instilling of scripture we must make sure that our life models this too you know tragically many children in christian homes in the u.s have two dads and two moms and i don't mean that in the way you might think at first what i mean is there's dad and mom at church and then there's dad and mom at home they have the same name same dna the same social security number but what they say and do here is really different than once they get in the car and they're driving home. If your private life doesn't match your public religious life, you're teaching your children a lesson that you don't want to teach them. You're teaching them that, well, yeah, that's true, kind of in this isolated religious context, but in the reality of life, this is true. We should be able to tell our children, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, of course, we're not going to be perfect. But even that is a teaching example. You can say to them, I am sorry. What I did was a sin against you. But hey, we have a Savior who forgives us. And so I'm not talking about being perfect. So mom, dad, grandmom, granddad, others in the church, the responsibility is on you. You know, tragically, you may have heard that almost every year, about 70% of people who leave high school and had attended church decide to no longer keep going to church. You know, I've watched in my lifetime as the response has been, well, what we need to do is build a more dramatic, more exciting event. We need more lights, more energy, better speakers. And then I watch as people go, well, what we really need is we just need more kind of engaged time. We need a good teacher, but then we need to split them up into small groups and have someone who's there with them who can help walk through them. 
And then those small groups, well, to really grow as a small group, they need to spend time together. And they need to be able to inter interact with life with one another. And they need to, you know, maybe if we had a man and a woman in a small group so they could get to know each other better. And at the end of the day, I've wondered if any of them have ever realized, well, what we need is families. We need them to come to church. And then they split up into small groups. And they do life with them. And they help them realize, how does this apply to my life? And that, yeah, what he said maybe didn't make sense, but I can explain it on your level on the way home or at lunch. Or we can read another good book together. You know, I'm not opposed to groups, programs, dynamic personalities. And yet what your children need for a lifetime of faith, they don't need those. They can be nice bonuses. They need you engaged and in loving them instructing them and showing them God and his word. You know, it's a very hard, it's a very challenging calling God has given us. But by his spirit, by his grace, we can be the instruments that he uses to teach our children the truth of who he is and what he wants us to be. Let's pray. Lord, we do need you, whether that's in our parenting or in our daily lives or just getting through each day. So would you help us in this aspect as we seek to teach the next generation the wonderful truths of your word and who you are? Would you help us to know how to communicate? Would you give us a desire to do so? Would you help us to be the same person here as at home? And that you would then work through our efforts to draw our children to you and that they might know you every day of their life. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.